The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the company called Successories? All right, there's like four of you out there. For everybody else, this is a early morning education on strange companies. If you are not familiar with this company, uh, Successories produces a lot of the motivational posters and cards and inspiring coffee mugs. Uh, you'll often find some of their prints in businesses and business lounges and airports and hotels. So let me give you a couple of those images. Here's the first of those. Now, I recognize you all cannot read the writing at the bottom, so I will share it with you. It basically has the word excellence, and it says, Excellence is the result of caring more than others think is wise, risking more than others think is safe, dreaming more than others think is practical, and expecting more than others think is possible. And you have all of that awesomeness with a bald eagle. If I was not inspired before, I am definitely inspired right now. Here's another one of those images. It's a beautiful picture of somebody standing on top of a mountain above the cloud line, and basically the caption says, make it happen. Some people want it to happen. Some people wish it would happen. Others make it happen. It's a quote by Michael Jordan. And uh, next time I am hiking above the cloud line thinking about basketball, that's the quote right there that's going to be in my mind. So while Successories has made a business out of these wonderful, beautiful images and motivational thoughts, there's other companies that have actually seen that they can make some money on beautiful images with demotivational thoughts, specifically as a spoof against Successories. So here's a couple of those. It's a beautiful picture of a crew team rowing in the early morning light, and the caption says, get to work. You aren't being paid to believe in the power of your dreams. (laughs) I love it. All right, here's another one for your viewing pleasure. It's basically a guy putting out a brush fire with a water can. And the caption says, optimism. There are times when the thought just doesn't count. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? I don't know if you all know it or not, but, but I like my motivation served up with a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of reality in there. I, I feel like it grounds me as a person, and it makes me laugh, so it's kind of win-win all the way around. Well, anyway, humor aside, we know that motivation is an extremely powerful tool. People are motivated to do things. There's incentives behind why we do what we do. In fact, it's motivation that often gives people the extra incentive to do the things they wouldn't normally do or make the changes they wouldn't normally make or to make decisions that they've been putting off for a while. And motivation can come in any number of different ways. It could be that a person is motivated by success or by change or by money, advancement, health, education. You name it, there's all sorts of incentives that we have that motivate us. Motivation is a good thing. With motivation as the backdrop, I want you to think about a very important question this morning. What was your motivation when you entered a relationship with Christ? What motivated you to enter relationship with Christ? Now, we all recognize that there are some theological factors involved, and that is the Holy Spirit had to draw you into relationship 
The Holy Spirit had to quicken a dead spirit and illumine a deceived mind and enable us to understand the gospel. I understand all of that. So I'm not talking about the motivating factors in a theological sense. I'm talking about the motivating circumstances that God used to get your attention. What was happening in your life that awakened you to spiritual matters? For some people, it might have been a struggle with sin or addiction that brought them to rock bottom. And at rock bottom, they were finally willing to listen to what Jesus was sharing. For other people, there was an emptiness inside or a lack of fulfillment or this thought that was just unsettling that life is about more than existing. And that kind of internal nudge was the thing that kept prompting them along. For other people, it was the death of a friend or a family member. And in a moment of death, there was incredible clarity about spiritual matters. For somebody else, it might have been that they were in church for a long time, and there was the cumulative impact of Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture that was being preached so that the truths began to sink in over the course of time. And one day, there's this moment of clarity, and you recognize that you're a sinner, and you recognize that Jesus is your Savior, and there was a, an internal conviction that brought you to repent before Christ. I'm not sure what it is for you, but chances are there were some motivating circumstances that were happening in your life that began to awaken you to spiritual matters. So once again... What were the motivating circumstances that God used to get your attention? Here's our key truth for this morning. Your motivation when entering a relationship may unintentionally determine the extent of that relationship. Your motivation when entering relationship may unintentionally determine the extent of that relationship. I'm going to unpack that idea and the implications that come with it throughout this morning. So I invite you at the time, go with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to our primary text that we're going to study. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. I am speaking this morning on the subject, the motivation of relationship. Now, before we get into that text, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to set up this concept before we get in. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father... We recognize this morning that we need you to take words from a page, to take a story of the Apostle Paul, and to make it make sense in our mind this morning. God, we need you for that. I pray that there would be incredible clarity that you give us in Jesus' name. Amen. This last week, we began a brand new message series entitled The Anatomy of Relationship. And the focus is on the essence, the structure, the internal workings of our relationship with God. So for five weeks, we are immersing ourselves in one text, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But on each of these weeks, we're going to come to the text from a different angle. So last week, we saw the goal of the relationship. The goal of the relationship is to know Christ. And that's important because the goal we set is often the target that we hit. For some people, the goal of their relationship is to be a better person. The goal of their relationship is to know more about the Bible or to know more about the God. Or for that person, maybe it's just to get into heaven one day when they die. So whatever the goal is, we need to know that. The Apostle Paul's motivating goal was to know Christ, according to Philippians 3, verses 8 and 10. The word know or knowing, it speaks of personal knowledge gained by ongoing contact. The Apostle Paul was not saying, I want to know about Christ. 
He was saying, I want to know Christ, personally know Christ, and I want to continue to know him in deeper and deeper ways. So last week, we focused on the goal of the relationship, and we were asking the question, what are we trying to achieve? This week, we're talking about the motivation of the relationship, and we're asking the question, why are we in the relationship at all? The question is important because your motivation when entering relationship may unintentionally determine the extent of that relationship. So to understand our motivation, we need to go back to that moment in which we met Christ. And in our study today, we need to go back and see when the Apostle Paul met Christ because he was the one that was writing the book of Philippians. So our main text is one that the Apostle Paul was writing. His conversion story is found in Acts chapter 9, one of the most famous conversion stories in the entire Bible. We find that at the time, his name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was traveling to Damascus, and he had papers in hand from the high priest that he could arrest and imprison anyone who was a disciple of Jesus that he found along the way. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it gives us the Apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, his general demeanor towards Jesus and Jesus' disciples. Here's what it says about him, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was not a fan of Jesus or his disciples. In fact, by his own admission in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, when the first Christian martyr died, a guy by the name of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the apostle Paul was present. He was condoning the actions of those who were stoning him, and he literally was holding the coats of those who were throwing the stones at the apostle Paul. Are at Stephen. So that is this guy's background. He did not like Jesus. He did not like disciples of Christ. And in fact, we understand based on his story, he thought he was right in this. He considered himself to be a religious zealot who was protecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was also protecting what true Judaism was all about from what he considered to be a false Messiah and the followers of a false Messiah. But all of that changed in this one trip. Here's what it says. You can read along on the screen in front of you. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 8. As he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and it'll be told to you what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. A little bit later in that exact same chapter, after arriving in Damascus, and after regaining his sight, and after being baptized... This is what the Apostle Paul says. Immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That Damascus Road encounter changed everything for the Apostle Paul. It changed his perspective. It changed his view of God. It changed his understanding about Jesus. 
pride and self-righteousness crumbled under the recognition that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. He went from a guy thinking he was in control of everything to a guy recognizing he was not in control as he is now blinded and led by the hand into Damascus. He realized that the same Jesus he had hated is now the same Jesus who found him. Don't let those last words get past you. Jesus found him. The Apostle Paul was not searching for Jesus. He was not questioning his faith. He was not looking for a change on this Damascus road. He was literally in the process of persecuting followers of Christ when Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks. Saul was running full speed away from Jesus when Jesus found him. And it is in that defining moment that Saul the sinner met Jesus the Savior. The persecutor met the persecuted one. The one who boasted in his self-righteousness realized that he was chief of all sinners. The one who thought he was doing right realized he had persecuted the Son of God, hated the very Messiah he claimed to love, had been blinded from the truth by his own pride, had arrested and killed innocent people, and even doing all of that, Jesus came for him. That's what's happening in that moment. There are two motivating factors that hit home on that day for him. Saul is a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Those are two key factors that he got on that specific day. Now, knowing the motivating circumstances surrounding his conversion, I now want us to reread our primary text again from Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is the one saying, But whatever things were gained to me, those I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, when a person recognizes the magnitude of their sin in light of the holiness of God, When the person thinks that they were doing right only to find out how prideful and wrong they were. When that person, in this case Saul of Tarsus, recognizes that their hatred led them to condemn and kill an innocent man. And then they realize that even in that context, Jesus still came for them. Nothing in the world will ever compare with having Christ and knowing Christ and serving Christ. Because when the depths of sin meets the unfathomable grace of God, everything else pales in comparison. That's why he called everything else rubbish. Do you know what rubbish is? Another word? Dung. He says everything else in comparison with Christ is like excrement. It's like dung compared to him. Keep reading in verse number 9. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The apostle Paul saw how his self-righteousness got him in trouble before. Do you see how quickly he is willing to say, I don't want my own righteousness I saw what my righteousness did. He says, I'm not here because I'm claiming my own righteousness, but by faith, he is claiming the righteousness that comes from Christ. Look at what it says in verse number 10. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. It did not bother the apostle Paul if suffering came with Christ. Because suffering was a small price to pay for a man who had caused so much other suffering. He did not care if death came with Christ. Because death is a small price to pay for a man who had innocently killed other people. He did not care what came with Christ because from Paul's perspective, he was just glad that nothing could now separate him from the love of Christ. So the apostle Paul was motivated by Christ's love and motivated by Christ's grace and motivated by Christ's forgiveness and motivated now by this profound gratefulness for all that Christ had done. Every bit of what I just mentioned flows out of the gospel. I've shared this statement many times before. Those who have been saved from much are thankful for much. Those who have been saved from much, they're thankful, they're grateful for much. When people remember where Jesus found them, they sing a little bit louder. When people remember how Jesus saved them, oftentimes they'll start shouting in a church service and they're not embarrassed by it. When people remember how Jesus loved them when they were unlovable, that person begins to pursue Jesus more intently than others. People who remember what life was like prior to Christ no longer want to make life after Christ about them. Because they saw what life was like before. They're like, I don't want that anymore. Everything that has now come with Christ, it is superior. It is far surpassing. It is greater than anything I ever experienced myself. So here's the question again. What motivated you to enter relationship with Christ? What circumstances did God use to get your attention? I went to a Christian middle school. And once a week we'd have a chapel service and one of the pastors from the church would come and share a message. And at one point they decided to shake things up a little bit and they began to show some of those 1980s movies on the rapture. I don't know if you remember those things, but they were horribly done. They were bad. Uh, We saw a distant thunder. We saw a thief in the night. Uh, Yeah, some of you were there. We saw the mark of the beast. And let me tell you, they were horribly done, complete with bad acting and even worse special effects. But I can tell you what they were great at. They scared the snot out of middle schoolers. So... The movies showed kids being left alone as their parents were taken up in the rapture with Jesus. They showed mass chaos in cities, and they showed abandoned cars on the freeway, and they showed church services that were empty on a Sunday morning. They showed civilization destabilizing and people standing in food lines and and people receiving the mark of the beast just to be able to live. It was quite an uplifting set of movies. So after we saw him, the student pastor got up and he said, everything you just saw will happen when Jesus comes for his church. And you can either escape that and go to heaven if you pray to receive Christ. Or if you don't, you will go through everything you just saw and go to hell when you die. Who would like to pray to receive Christ? (laughs) Every hand went up, mine included. You know why? We were motivated. Fear was the motivator. 
There's no question about it. We, in that moment, we knew, I need to pray a prayer. But listen, listen, here's the sad part. Fear is not the gospel. Fear might prompt you to listen to the gospel. But fear is not the gospel. On that day, there were a lot of kids who prayed a prayer of fear, but we didn't understand the gospel. We didn't understand that we were sinners. We didn't understand our sins separated us from God. We didn't understand who Jesus was or what Jesus did. For us on that day, truth be known, we would have prayed to Buddha, Muhammad, or the big bad wolf if we would have thought it helped. We knew nothing about Jesus. When you gave your life to Christ... What was your motivation? What motivated you to place faith in Jesus? Because your motivation when entering relationship may unintentionally determine the extent of that relationship. There are churches that are filled with people who prayed a prayer out of fear. They prayed a prayer out of coercion. They prayed a prayer out of desperation. But they never understood the gospel. And they've never seen spiritual fruit in their life. But we have to remember, it's not the gospel of fear. It's not the gospel of coercion. It's not the gospel of desperation. It's the gospel of grace. And some people have never grown in their relationship with God because they've never yet been saved. They need to encounter Christ. A prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Fear doesn't save you. The gospel saves you. So, once again, your motivation when entering relationship may unintentionally determine the extent of that relationship. There's other people out there that when they prayed a prayer placing faith in Jesus Christ, they understood the gospel. No question about it. They are saved as secure as any person who has ever been saved before. However, for that person, they continue to focus heavily on the circumstantial motivations that led to their salvation. That is, they focus back on the death of that loved one. Or they focus on the personal crisis. Or they focus on that deep unsettledness or hitting rock bottom. So as a result, the extent of their relationship with God has always been, thank you God that you're going to give me heaven when I die. And that's where it ends. Or thank you God that you fixed my last problem. And now the only time they come back is when they got another problem. Or thank you, God, that you have helped settle that unsettledness. But whenever that unsettledness comes back, they come back to God again under those same circumstances. Here's the thought that hit me this morning. It's almost like when you see an actor who has been in their defining role, and you can never see them in any other movie or any other program without seeing them in that original role. For example, Screech from Saved by the Bell. I don't, it doesn't matter how many times I see him in something else, that's Screech right there. Okay? Yeah, think of some other ones that are out there. Richard Dean Anderson. You might not recognize the name. That was MacGyver. I mean, once he was MacGyver, he's always MacGyver. Every time I see him, that's MacGyver. You need to fix something. You need to pull out that little Swiss Army knife and handle some business right there. Here's what I'm saying. When people have focused on the motivational circumstances instead of the gospel that saved them, sometimes the only time they go back to God is when he matches the original role he filled in their life. God, you're the problem solver. I'll see you again when I got another problem. 
God, you got me into heaven. Thank you. Between now and then, I'll keep thanking you for heaven when I die. Do you know what happens? God uses the circumstances to get our attention. But the circumstances are to bring us to an understanding of the gospel so that it's the gospel that is the motivation now within our relationship with him. Now, just think about it like this. The Apostle Paul's conversion story was one where God used circumstantial motivators, bright light, temporary blindness, and a voice from heaven to get his attention. But the Apostle Paul didn't spend the rest of his Christian journey walking up and down the Damascus Road waiting for another light. He didn't spend the rest of his Christian journey preparing to be temporarily struck blind again. He didn't spend the rest of his Christian journey only acting when he heard God audibly speak from the skies. You know why? Because circumstances got his attention, but the gospel became his motivation. The church has not focused on the motivation why people are placing faith in Christ. We're not asking them why, but why is crucial. Because oftentimes we're just excited anybody's interested. So when somebody's interested and they're willing to pray a prayer, we don't go back and say, why do you want to place faith in Jesus? Do you understand what it means to place faith in Jesus? We're just like, great, Another one prayed with me. Praise the Lord. But here's the problem. Unless a person understands that they are a sinner separated from a holy God, that they understand that there is a Jesus who died on the cross for their sin and rose again on the third day, unless that person repents of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, they're not saved. And if a person is not saved, there is no relationship to develop. There is no intimacy to enjoy. There is no deepening what you don't have. Now, I'm not trying to scare people in their walk with God. Some of you are like, well, Paul, you're doing a fantastic job of it if that's not your intention. Here's what I am encouraging people to do. Ask the hard question today that you will be grateful you've asked in eternity. What motivated me? Because your circumstances can bring you to an understanding of the gospel. But at the end of the day, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save you. As we close, I want you to think about a couple of things that we've now discussed in this. That is, God uses certain motivating circumstances to lead you to a place where you can understand that he's been the one pursuing you. There are people in the room today that a part of their story right now is I came to church today because I had some friends who live in here in Vegas or family members in Vegas. I just decided to pop up in Vegas in order to experience the whole thing, and they asked me to come to church. Did you know that there could easily be a part of your story where God brought you here to specifically hear the message that can set you free? There's other people that you were invited this morning by a friend you didn't really want to come, but God used this invitation to get you to a place where you've heard that he's the one pursuing you. There's other people that they've been wondering for years, of all the places in the world for my company to move me to, why in the world did I show up in Vegas? And a part of that might be because God used those circumstances in order to enable you to hear what the gospel was all about. 
Whatever circumstances God used to get you into the room, it was for a purpose. God has been the one pursuing you. He loves you. He desires to have a relationship with you. For some of you, today might be that day you stop running and you just come out with your hands up and say, God, you found me. I didn't find you. You found me. So what does it look like when God finds you? What needs to happen? It needs to be that that person understands the gospel. Humanity was created for a relationship with God. Our sin separated us from that relationship. There was nothing that we could ever do to reconcile the relationship on our own. But Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead on the third day that we might have life. And he offers eternal life or a reconciled relationship to those who will repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're saying, I believe what you just said. I know my motivation before I prayed a prayer just because everybody else around me was praying a prayer. I prayed a prayer when I was 12 years old because somebody says, if you're 12 years old, make the faith yours right now. But you've, you've never had that settled feeling. If I'm describing you in any way, shape, or form, and there's something inside saying he's talking to you, please don't turn away that voice.